Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer Podcast. Today we're going to be discussing another murder from the 80s that quite literally defies all common sense to me. So we're going to be going to Olathe, Kansas. It's February of 1982. This is a church town. It's a really quiet place, low crime rate. Before I get started, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast. I love doing a true crime podcast. Like I truly, truly love it. If you haven't already, go check out my Facebook, which is Storytime Slayer. I'm also on YouTube, but I'm not going to lie. I'm more of just a dabbler. Um, I have a TikTok, but it's more just funny, funny, funny stuff. So that's Storytime Slayer as well. And then my Instagram is story underscore time underscore Slayer. Go give those pages some love. Reach out to me. Send me your um, requests for episodes. What kind of piques your interest? Whatever. Just go check it out. That's also where I'm going to put like photos, videos, interviews, anything coinciding with the crimes that I talk about and funny crime related memes. It's all on there. So Give me a five-star review, please, and then let's hear a word from my sponsors before we jump in. I have struggled with depression and anxiety most of my life. It has greatly affected my ability to work at times and connect with my loved ones. However, once I was connected with a licensed therapist, I felt so much better and found ways to cope with my anxiety and depression. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you too. BetterHelp has a broad range of expertise with over 20,000 therapists in their network, giving you access to help you may not have available within your area. And it is so simple to get matched with the help you need. You just fill out a questionnaire to assess your specific needs, and within 48 hours, you'll be connected to a therapist. The best part is you can schedule your sessions over video chat or on the phone whatever you're comfortable with. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages with your therapist, and it's all confidential, guys. Also, if you don't like your therapist or think they're a good fit, you can request a new one at any time for no cost. So join the 2 million people taking charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash S-T-S. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash S-T-S. Sign up using my promo code to get that 10% off your first month, and I will have that link in my show notes. Okay, let's jump in. The Bergstrand couple, Gail and her husband, lived in a duplex beside a couple named David and Melinda Harmon. So Gail hears a really heavy thudding noise in the middle of the night coming from David and Melinda's home. It's about 2.30 a.m. And Gail said she heard like six big thuds. Then there's a pause and she hears a dozen more. She goes to look out the window of her daughter's room because it oversaw into the backyard that both the family shared in these duplexes. And she does see a shadowy figure like leaving from the house through the yard. What does Gail do? She goes back to bed. I am so glad I'm not Gail's neighbor. About an hour later, someone started knocking really hard on the Bergenstrand family door. I want to say it's like a little bit before 4 a.m. And it was Melinda Harmon. She is very shaken up. She has a large bruise on her face. And she said that two black men came into her home wanting David's bank key. See, David was a bank manager. 
One of them hit Melinda very hard in the face and it actually rendered her unconscious. And then she came to and said it looked like David was dead. At Melinda and David's place, there was no signs of forced entry. Nothing looked disturbed downstairs. This is a two-story duplex. So the bedrooms are upstairs. The common living spaces are downstairs. And once you get into the upstairs hallway, you can see a significant amount of blood splatter in the hallway leading to the couple's bedroom. That is where they found David deceased. So David was lying face up on his bed. His blankets were all up to his body as if he'd been asleep when this happened. And it actually looks like David's been shot in the face. But in fact, he's been bludgeoned with an object to the point where his face is literally caved in. As you can imagine, the room is a grisly bloodbath. Something worth notice is David has no defensive wounds and appeared to not have struggled at all. Of course, police asked Melinda what the heck happened, and Melinda said that two masked black men came in their home while they were asleep, and they started attacking David with a crowbar while Melinda was lying next to him. Melinda said one of the men said to the other, quote, I think you hit him too hard. You may have killed him. End quote. Then they asked Melinda where David's bank key was and she goes and she grabs the key for them. And then one of the men knocks her in the face really hard and she falls unconscious. She thinks she was out for about an hour. And when she comes to and realizes what happened, she goes and she knocks on the neighbor's door. Here's the thing, though. Her husband was literally bludgeoned to death and she just has a very slight bruise on her face. She also didn't seem too groggy for someone who has just supposedly woken up for being knocked the hell out. I'm having serious flashbacks of Jeffrey McDonald. <laughs> but besides this story not really jiving with police, the evidence doesn't match either. See, David was lying asleep on his side of the bed when he was attacked. And there's a significant amount of blood on Melinda's pillow as well. But seeing how she was lying right next to David and was in a deep sleep when the attack occurred, there's no break in the blood splatter where Melinda's head and body should have been in this bed. Mind you, this is an extremely bloody crime scene. There's literally blood splatter everywhere. His face was bashed in and Melinda had hardly any blood on her nightgown. Like there's a really small amount of blood splatter at the very bottom. I learned something new about forensic evidence. A spot that blood splatter misses due to something blocking it, like an object or a person, is actually called a, quote, void. So, to be fancy, there was no void where Melinda's body should have been, and Melinda didn't have blood splatter indicating that she was near David in that close of a proximity while he was being beaten. So this sort of makes everyone question her story even more. It was more likely that Melinda was standing at the side of the bed towards the like kind of back from it when David was beat and not in fact lying next to him. Of course, police talked to the neighbors further and Gail said after Melinda asked Gail to call 911, she then asked her to call a man named Mark Mangseldorf and have him come over right away. Police immediately note that when Mark shows up, he is freshly showered and wearing a corduroy blazer. Guys, it's four in the morning when Mark arrives and he is showered and he is dressed like nicely too. Police actually use search dogs that lead them through the backyard, you know, trying to follow the trail of whoever Gail saw. And it takes them to a dumpster back at Mark's. Um, I think Mark lived in like an apartment or dormitory so it's a big community dumpster and although the dogs hit 
the dumpster like there was something in it. It was apparent that whatever was in it had already been collected by the trash men prior to the dog's arrival, which is such a bummer. All of this does strike police as questionable, but they still have to follow due diligence and follow the bank key robbery situation. So what they do is they stake out the bank round clock for any suspicious activity. Obviously, if they stole the bank key, they probably want to go rob the bank, right? But nobody ever shows up at the bank. Now, before we get too carried away in the crime, I just want to tell you guys a little bit about everybody. So David and Melinda met at Bible camp when they were just teenagers in 1973 in New York. They were actually working the church camp together that summer. They became smitten and were married at the age of 20 in 1977. They didn't settle in their life in Kansas until about 1981. It is said that David was head over heels for Melinda, completely smitten. So they belong to the Church of the Nazarene. And Nazarenes can be considered strict to many people because it calls for you to always be obedient to God. Always. The Church of the Nazarene is a Methodist denomination that started with the Holiness Movement. And the Holiness Movement started in the 19th century. And it's basically the removal of all worldly sin being one with the Holy Spirit, which sounds like most Christianity's goals, right? But I don't mean this is like a do your best. It's total devotion. I mean, they literally have a manual. It reminds me of the movie Footloose because it's a religion that discourages dancing. Um, I don't think they can display any kind of affection, even kissing before marriage. And remember, this crime took place in 1982. So some of the more modern leniencies that are potentially in place for Church of the Nazarene were not at all when David and Melinda crossed paths. And just to put it into perspective, the pressure of being a good Nazarene for Melinda, her family was really high up in the church. So like, you know, she couldn't stray. She couldn't stray. No kissy kissy before marriage. It's also really common for Nazarenes to marry young because they want to have that intimacy, I'm sure. And like I said, they can't even kiss. So that is exactly what David and Melinda did. They got married when they were really young. I think they were like 20 and 19. Okay, so remember Mark who came over right after the murders? Mark is David's BFF. He's 22 years old. He's a devout Nazarene as well, and he attends the Mid-America Nazarene University, and that's where Melinda works as a secretary. In fact, it was Melinda who befriended Mark first and then introduced Mark to David, and the three of them just hit it off. So Mark starts hanging out with the couple a lot, like almost every single day day. Melinda even cooks for Mark and sometimes does his laundry, which is bizarre. Like I ain't doing none of my friends laundry, period. And me and my husband, we have a few friends that it's like we're both friends with them and I'm not doing their laundry. Like I'm not doing it. People actually noted how Melinda seemed to be as close to Mark as her husband David was, and it was really frowned upon. This is a very conservative religious community, and Melinda was also warned about how it looked by coworkers and church members because, remember, on a professional level, Melinda works for the university, and Mark is a student there. So nothing happened at the bank, like I said. No one suspicious was seen at the bank, so police start focusing on Melinda and Mark further. For one... Melinda seemed to have a really suspicious connection to Mark. For two, Mark was showered wearing a nice corduroy jacket, and he literally only took 10 minutes to get to Melinda's house after being called. So it's not like it took him an hour to get there. 
So police bring Mark in to question him. Of course, he denies any culpability or involvement in the crime and insists that he and Melinda's relationship is strictly platonic. There's nothing more. So police ask to search Mark's apartment and he readily agrees. And when they conduct the search, they, for one, they find some blood in Mark's doorway that was unfortunately not able to be matched to David. But they also found several love notes exchanged between Mark and Melinda. Despite the discovery of the love notes, Mark and Melinda adamantly deny any sort of romantic relationship or feelings for each other. After this line of questioning, though, both Mark and Melinda quit talking to police and they actually both move away. Police keep tabs on the couple for a little bit, but they didn't move away to be together. They actually moved away to totally different states and appeared to have no contact nor friendship with each other after David passed away. The last time Mark and Melinda even spoke or saw each other was at David's funeral, and this would go on for like 23 years. This leaves police a little bit stuck. There isn't any real physical evidence to prove Mark or Melinda did this. It's all just a theory. And with no evidence, the case goes cold for two decades. In the meantime, Mark had gone to Harvard and then moved to New York where he was a marketing executive. He gets married and he has five kids. Melinda moved to Ohio and she marries a really lucrative dentist and together they have three children. In 2001, Kansas police rifle through their old cold cases, and that's about 19 years after David was murdered. So his case is one that they decide to reopen. Officers pay Melinda a visit, and she's surprisingly willing to speak to officers and has a much different story than the first one she told. Instead of two black men in masks, she said that there was actually one intruder. It was a white man in a mask, and Melinda was woken to the man beating David. So she got up and she ran into the bathroom to hide. Melinda is positive now that the intruder was in fact their BFF Mark. Wow. Okay. So police ask her to come to the police station for a formal interview. She agrees and the girl just totally lets the truth roll out y'all she said that her and mark in fact were having an emotional affair of course being devout members of the nazarene church melinda and mark did not actually act on their feelings in a sexual manner and they agreed that they could never be together because like for one it's immoral and for two divorce is frowned upon heavily in their church community you could literally get penalizing actions for it melinda said that they still thought of a way that she could get out of her marriage with David. And then Melinda realizes that she's told police way too much and she just abruptly stops the interview and asks the DA for some sort of cooperation plea deal, right? Or like leniency for her cooperating. The DA is like, "Uh uh-uh, no deal, girl. We got your ass. So the theory is that Melinda left the back patio door open for Mark. He comes in, Melinda's already awake and not lying in the bed. Mark then proceeds to beat David to death with Melinda standing back in the room, hence why there was such little blood on the bottom of her pajama dress. Then Mark hits her really hard in the face so that Melinda would appear to have been attacked as well. Mark goes home, showers, changes, and waits for the phone call from Melinda's neighbors. It's about an hour after showering that he gets the call and he rushes over. It takes him 10 minutes to arrive on scene after 911 is called. 
So it is 2003. Melinda, who is now 47, is arrested and charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Then Mark, who is living in New York and literally has no idea that this case is even being reinvestigated, gets a phone call from his apartment lobby that he needs to come downstairs. Once down in the lobby, he too is arrested, and both of them are taken back to Kansas, where they're facing first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder together. So it is so crazy that these people were more afraid of their religious community judging or persecuting them than, oh, I don't know, the Ten Commandments. <laughs> so Melinda's trial is first and the lack of, quote, void where her body should have been during David's attack and the lack of blood on Melinda in her pajamas was presented in trial. The little bit of blood splatter on Melinda showed that she had potentially been there watching the attack from a distance, which is so cold. That is so cruel. Plus, the small bruise on her cheek was likely not powerful enough blow to knock her out like she'd claimed. She was very alert for someone who'd been knocked out cold when police arrived. And they also have her damning interview statements where she quite literally revoked her first story and admitted Mark was the killer. Mark is called to testify in Melinda's defense during her trial. And y'all, Mark, he's a ride or die. He maintained that he had no affair with Melinda, emotional nor sexual, and that he did not kill David. Even when questioned about the love affair letters he and Melinda exchanged in her taped confession in 2001, Mark was like, uh-uh, wasn't me. The jury didn't buy it, though, and after three weeks, they found Melinda guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. In hopes of a more lenient prison sentence, Melinda offers to testify against Mark, and she says that she has one card left to play that she can put into her testimony. Wow. Can we just say that Melinda has literally no loyalty? Not to David, not to Mark. This lady's wild. So she told the attorneys during David's funeral, Mark came up to her and whispered that he ditched the murder weapon and she was willing to testify against Mark and include that in her testimony for some leniency. To my surprise, the attorneys agreed and she actually got to plea for a lesser charge of second degree murder. Wow. Mark was actually out on bail when this happens and he finds out about the plea deal. So during his pretrial hearing, he too takes a plea deal for the lesser charge of murder in the second degree. And both of them are sentenced 10 to 20 years. Melinda gets out after only nine years. So she was paroled in 2015 and then Mark gets out after only 10 years. He's paroled in 2016. This is way too light of a sentencing, in my opinion. The locals called this murder of David a, quote, Nazarene divorce, end quote, because I guess, you know, adultery is literally more frowned upon than murder in this community. Nazarenes really do believe in heaven and hell, but they also believe in repentance. So I really just wonder how guilty Mark and Melinda truly feel. I hope that they fear the repercussions of going to hell. Like I, I, I genuinely hope so. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast. This crime was really weird to me because I just don't understand. Melinda could have just told them, no, I don't have anything else to say. Please leave my porch. But instead, she just spilled it all and she had kids after they did this like she was a mom when she confessed to these crimes so anyway thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast and I will talk to you next week bye